glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Namatman, Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya, Bhutale, Srimati, Bhaktivedanta Swami, Nichinamani. Namaste, Saraswati, Deve, Gauravani, Pachami, Sitani, Vandeham, Sri Guru, Sri Yuta, Padakamalam, Sri Guru, Vaishnavam, Sri Rupam, Sagrajatam, Sahagana, Raghunatam, Vitam, Sam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitam Panchakapa Jivista Kipasandriyavita Padijanam Pavanavya Vaishnavya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's April 7, 2016 in Houston, Texas. And we'll be reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 9, Chapter 21, The Dynasty of Bharata. And we're going to be reading, we're reciting text 22, and we're going to be reading through text 25. Ajamidad Brihadishush, Tasya Putra Brihadvanu, Brihadvanu, Brihadkakshyastatatasya, Putra Ajit Jayadrata from Ajamida Brihadishu, a son named Brihadishu, Tasya, his, Putraha, son, Brihadanuhu, Brihadanu, Brihadkayaha. Brihatkaya, Tataha, thereafter, Tasya, his, Putraha, son, Asit, was, Jayadrata, Jayadrat. Translation. From Ajamita came a son named Brihadishu. From Brihadishu came a son named Brihadanu. From Brihadanu, a son named Brihatkaya. And from Brihatkaya, a son named Jayadrata. Text 23. The son of Jayadratha was Vishada, and his son was Svenajit. The sons of Svenajit were Ruchi Shrava, Dridhadanu, Kasya, and Vatsya, Vatsa. Text 24. The son of Ruchi, Shvara, Ruchi, Ruchi Rashva was Pada, and the sons of Pada were Prithusena and Nipa. Nipa had 100 sons. Text 25. King Nipa begot a son named Ramadatta through the womb of his wife, Kritvi, who was the daughter of Shuka, and Brahmadatta, who was a great yogi, begot a son named Vishvaksena through the womb of his wife, Saraswati. Purport. The Shuka mentioned here is different from the Shukadeva Goswami who spoke Srimad Bhagavatam. Shukadeva Goswami, the son of Vyasadeva, is described in great detail in the Brahma Vaivarta Purana, 
There it is said that Vyasadeva maintained the daughter of Jabali as his wife, and that after they performed penances together for many years, he placed his seed in her womb. The child remained in the womb of his mother for twelve years, and when the father asked the son to come out, the son replied that he would not come out unless he were completely liberated from the influence of Maya. Vyasadeva then assured the child that he would not be influenced by Maya, but the child did not believe his father, for the father was still attached to his wife and children. Vyasadeva then went to Dwarka and informed the Personality of Godhead about his problem. And the Personality of Godhead, at Vyasadeva's request, went to Vyasadeva's cottage, where he assured the child in the womb that he would not be influenced by Maya. Thus assured, the child came out, but he immediately went away as a parivart, Parivrajakacharya. When the father, very much aggrieved, began to follow his saintly boy, Shukadeva Goswami, the boy created a duplicate Shukadeva, who later entered family life. Therefore, the Shukakanya, or the daughter of Shukadeva, mentioned in this verse, is the daughter of the duplicate or imitation Shukadeva. The original Shukadeva was a lifelong Brahmacharya. We have a number of interesting things here in this purport. In fact, in a number of these verses, we have some interesting things about reproduction. We have Nipa who had a hundred sons. Uh, there's many such accounts. Of course, maybe he had ten wives or fifteen wives, but we even have some accounts of like Gantari as one person having a hundred children, or uh, Daksha and his wife who had tens of thousands of children. So, of course, we cannot even imagine such a thing today. How would that be possible? One point, of course, is that they live for a very long time. So, in the, And some of these personalities are even on other planets, and they don't exactly even have human bodies. So their bodies are capable of acting in different ways. So some of these fantastic stories of reproduction. And then another one here in this purport, two amazing reproductive things in this purport. What are they? He stayed in the womb for 12 years. He stayed in the womb, actually three, let's say three. Stayed in the womb for 12 years. He created an imitation Shukadev. And as soon as he was born, he was a part of Rajakacharya. So I haven't seen any newborn babies. Right? Baby comes out of the womb, it's only like this big. It can't walk. Right? It's not going to... And, and oh, we could have another one, too, that the baby in the womb is having a conversation. Right? So that's a, another one. Right? The baby in the womb is having this conversation with his father that if I'm, if I'm going to be born, I don't want to be an illusion. And the father's saying, no, 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 don't worry. And the son says, I don't believe you. You're attached to the world. And then Krishna has to come and assure him. And then he comes out. So generally, there's not, we don't have a conversation with the unborn child that we can hear. Obviously, you can speak to your unborn child and they'll hear you, but you don't usually hear their response, isn't it? There's, there's many accounts like this going the one way. So how are we going to take these amazing stories? And it's, of course, stories like this that cause scholars and rationalists and scientists to look at the Shastra and say, oh, this is all mythology. Okay? It's just some legends. It's just some story. And the only way you can understand the Shastra is metaphorically. Now, sometimes the Shastra is... Speaking metaphorically, who particularly tells a lot of metaphors in the Bhagavata? 
Narada Muni. So he really likes to preach through metaphor. And he tells the long, long, long metaphor and analogy of Puranjana. And of course, then he also tells the story to Daksha's sons. We're mentioning Daksha had tens of thousands of sons about the wheel turning and the hole and, and the sons just get the metaphor and they, they go. We have also, who else tells some metaphors in the Bhagavatam? Long metaphors. Fifth canto. Bharat, Jed Bharat, tells this whole long metaphor, all the forest of material enjoyment. He's talking about a merchant who goes to the forest and there's owls and there's hills and all these kind of things. So he's all speaking metaphorically. And, and the book we're studying in our evening seminars, Manashiksha, is also having a lot of metaf- metaphors. Right? The, the prostitute, the tigress, the personifications of lust, anger, envy, greed, who have ropes made of wicked deeds. And we're going to be finding more metaphors in what we're studying tonight. So to preach through metaphor is quite commonly done. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati told a lot of metaphorical and allegorical stories. And a lot of the Shastra is indeed uh, metaphor. Krishna uses metaphors and similes also. He talks about how you can smell the fragrance of a flower, the wind blowing everywhere. He uses also similes and metaphors. So, but at the same time, we're saying that unless the Shastra, unless the speakers in the Shastra are explicitly saying that they're speaking in metaphorical language, that we take these accounts as historical fact. We don't, we don't say, well, because this is fantastic according to our understanding, therefore we're just going to relegate it to the realm of stories. So how is it that we gain faith in the Shastra? What is our process for gaining faith in the Shastra, and why should we have faith in the Shastra? So our process for gaining faith in the Shastra is primarily through Pratyaksha Bhagavam Dharma. That when we follow the instructions of the Shastra, they work. This is our, our simple method of gaining faith in the Shastra. Uh, just like uh, I've cooked from many cookbooks over the years, but I find I'm going to unplugging here Korma's cookbooks. I found that Korma's cookbook's recipes were very simple to use and almost always worked. I don't think I've ever cooked from a recipe of his that didn't work. Therefore, I have faith in his cookbook. And therefore, I would recommend it to people and I would give it to people as a gift and I would keep it in my home. Whereas I cook from other cookbooks that, you know, sometimes it turns out right, sometimes it doesn't. Or, you know, you can buy on the market today thousands or tens of thousands of books of instruction for changing your life. I'm sure there's tens of thousands. How to have a good marriage, you know, how to have a healthy back, whatever. It's some kind of instructional manual. We're staying at Kalindi's house and she has in her home practically every book they sell in Krishna culture. I told her it's a very dangerous house for me. I'll never get anything done. I'll just sit there reading all the books. So some of the books are like that. She's got books on, you know, especially family relations and books on health. And, you know, I'm sure some of those books work somewhat and some of them work more and some of them probably don't work at all. You know, you'll read a a book and you'll follow it. This doesn't do anything for me. Or I recommended one book to some other devotees and they said, we read one page and it changed our relationship. So that's the main way that we get faith in the Shastra, that it works. Ravindra Sri Prabhu likes to tell the story of when he was in college 
he started chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, and very quickly he lost the desire to smoke without having any idea that the mantra would have that effect. Hmm? And then he said he stopped chanting because he thought, well, what am I chanting that it's doing this to me? What kind of power is in this mantra? And judging by the result is particularly efficacious when you don't know what the result's going to be. Just like in modern medicine, they have something called the placebo effect. Are you familiar with this? So about 30% of people who get fake medicine, just like sugar pill, will get better because they believe it's medicine given by the doctor. And this is a much higher percentage, I don't remember what it is, if it's surgery. So if they do a fake surgery or tell you you've had a fake surgery, then there's, a, I think it's like 50% of people will get better, even though it wasn't anything real. Right? And especially if they tell you this is a new experimental treatment and you're going to be privy to this. And because of this placebo effect, before any medicine can be uh, certified by the FDA in America, there has to be what they call a double-blind study where you know, a certain portion of people are getting the real medicine and a certain portion of people are getting the placebo and the, neither the doctors nor the patients know who's getting the real medicine and who's getting the placebo. So therefore, if you have some idea of what effect something's going to have and you believe in the authority of the person giving it to you, it could have an effect even if there's no potency in it. However, if you don't believe in the authority of who's giving it to you, and you don't know what the effect is, and still you get an effect, then the thing must have what the Shastra calls atma It must have its own potency. And Srila Prabhupada often talks about the Shastra and the Hare Krishna mantra like that. That even if you don't know what it is, even if you have no idea what you're contacting, and even if your purpose isn't spiritual purification, you're still going to experience an effect. I remember a young man who visited our temple in Germany while there was a big Pandavasena festival going on. He was an American traveling through Europe. And he stopped by the temple, and after a day or two, he said, I think I'm going to try chanting. So he took some beads, he went out in the woods around the temple, and he came back after about an hour, and he said, this Hare Krishna mantra should be a controlled substance. You know, he had this amazing experience while chanting. So this is the, our main criteria. And as far as eliminating the placebo effect, I think one of the main evidences for the fact that it's not a placebo effect is that following the Shastra changes the lives of people who are not brought up in Indian culture or Vedic culture. If you're brought up in the culture, you may be brought up hearing, well, these are the sacred literatures and they're going to change your life. And this is the... But if you're just brought up in Houston, right? some, you know, southern dude in Houston. I mean, I remember meeting some of those people here at the temple. And you have no idea of what is the culture. You don't believe in the authority of the Shastra. You know, we can say, well, the Shastra is bona fide because Vyasadev says so. Because Narayuni says, well, who are those people? If you just go to some mall in downtown Houston and you start talking about Narayuni and Vyasadev, who are those people? You have to talk about their authorities, Albert Einstein or something. So they don't have faith in the authority of the Shastra. They have no idea what the effect will be. And still, we're out distributing the books, and people take the books, and they say over and over again, my life is transformed. By following the instructions in this book, my life is transformed. 
So this is the main way that we know that something is bona fide. By its result, as Jesus said, you judge a tree by its fruits. And Srila Prabhupada would say this over and over again. You judge something by the results. Of course, one can say you could not apply the Shastra properly, and we have people who do follow the Shastra, and they say, well, I don't get a result. But that's true across the board. Some of the people given some medicine, some surgery, they don't get a result. But you go by what is the majority. What is the majority? And of course, we also understand that sometimes people don't get the proper result because they're not yet purified. It's like a seed starts growing underground. You don't see the seed for a while. You don't see the little leaves. It has to come out from under the ground. So we call this agyata sukriti. Agyata unknowing. It's invisible, imperceptible. And that person's result will fructify in time. But they may not see it right away because they're so covered and so contaminated. So sometimes that happens. Or people may misapply the Shastra and not get a result. So this is how we should have our faith in the Shastra. Prabhupada says blind following is condemned. And people are very critical of blind following in the modern age. If you just say, well, this, is, this Shastra is true and... This boy was in the womb for 12 years and he created a duplicate of himself and he got up and walked away right after birth. You know, those of us women who've given birth were like, carried him for 12 years and then he's born full grown. It doesn't sound very comfortable. So, you know, instead of looking at it like that, we say, you know, this works and therefore if the Shastra says this happened, it must have happened. Now, another way that we have faith in the Shastra, besides the fact that it worked, is that the world is full of fantastic things. The world is full of things that cannot be explained by gross science and by logic, even at our present time. I mean, when I was growing up, we were studying the Bible, and when they would look at the fantastic things in the Bible, they would just say, well, those happened a long time ago. They're not happening today. But you know what? There's all kinds of amazing things happening today that cannot be explained. When I used to run a Gurukul, I remember asking Sadhaputra Prabhu, what do I do about faith in the Shastra when I have students who don't have faith in the Shastra? And he said, well, when you were growing up, did you ever read books about like psychic phenomena or things? I said, oh yeah. He said, why don't you expose your students to that kind of material? So there's all kinds of things that gross science can't explain. All of the paranormal Uh, phenomena, people who can predict the future, people who can read other people's minds, people who can manipulate objects with their minds. And these things are very well documented. They're very well documented in research done by places like Duke University and by the former Soviet government who hoped to manipulate psychic phenomena for military purposes. But they can't explain it at all. There's accounts of things falling from the sky, like frogs and fish, and the scientists have no explanation for this at all. All sorts of phenomena. When it comes to reproductive technology, which is the main unbelievable things we have in today's verses, there's things being done today in reproductive medicine that weren't dreamed about 20 or 30 years ago. It just just wouldn't, wouldn't... were inconceivable that they have this, you know, IVF and they fertilize the egg outside the womb and implant it and they can even take some woman who's like 70 years old 
and they can give her hormones and implant a baby and she can give birth to a child. And if you said that to somebody, you know, in the 1950s, they would say, that's impossible. That's unbelievable. It can't happen. Right? Or we also have in the ninth canto one account of a man who becomes pregnant. I'm not sure if you got to that point. He drinks the payasa and he becomes pregnant. The child's delivered uh, through an incision. But such things can actually happen. Even sometimes in a woman, the child implants in the abdominal wall instead of in the uterus. So these things are possible. And cloning, you know, Sukadeva Goswami is producing a clone, so modern medicine is also starting to produce a clone. So there's all kinds of things which are, you know, they seemed impossible years ago. I remember my mother-in-law saying that when she heard there would be television, she said, how can you send pictures through space? She said, I can understand sound, but how do you send pictures through space? Or the technology we take for granted that, you know, each of us has in our pocket a computer more powerful than the computers that existed in the 1940s and filled a room this big. And we've got that in our pocket, and you can just pick it up and say, tell me the population of Lima, Peru, and it just tells you the population of Lima, Peru. And give me directions to go to the local Walmart, and there it gives you directions. And I was traveling with a friend of mine some years ago through Europe, and very sweet lady, but we didn't start out with maps. So we didn't know where we were going, and we were getting lost, and instead of going to Belgium, we were going to Liechtenstein, and I mean, it was just a mess. And then, you know, I, I pulled out my GPS on my phone, and she's like, wow, that's amazing. And again, if you told somebody that, I mean, when I was a kid, if you told, told somebody you could have this, this tiny little thing in your pocket that could pinpoint your location on Earth and tell you whether you should turn right or left at a stoplight, I mean, even I wonder that. How does this thing know exactly where I am on the road? People would have said, that's impossible. That's unbelievable. You can't do it. And a lot of these technological advances, people were skeptical sometimes for decades. And what to speak of all of the subtle miracles that go on on the planet. So the, the idea that there's something that to our mind in 2016 is fantastic and unimaginable doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. I mean, right now, modern science is trying to artificially change people's gender, right? They do some surgery to cut them up and stitch them back together and give them chemicals to change their gender. But in the Bhagavatam here in the Ninth Canto, people would actually get their gender changed. You read that story already? of Ila and Sajumi. The child that was born a girl and, and the sister turned her into a boy and then he takes a walk through Lord Shiva's forest and turns back into a woman and then by praying to Lord Shiva every month he switches back and forth from a man to a woman. And as a woman had children and as a man had children. It was a real woman and a real man. So if we can sort of kind of pretend to do that with modern science, we can't really do that. We can't really at the present time, turn men into women and women into men. But if we can kind of sort of do it, why couldn't somebody really do it through a subtle science? Why has that become so unbelievable? That Sukadeva Goswami, you know, I don't think he popped out of the womb at, at 12 years old, but that he immediately grew up. We have stories of the demigods who immediately grow up. We even have people today who have different genetic disorders where they grow old very fast and things like that. So that's the capability is there in the human body. 
So therefore, even these fantastic stories are not so unbelievable. If we can produce clones in a gross way by playing around in a laboratory, why can't Sukadev Goswami have produced clones in a subtle way? I mean, as I said, even today, there's subtle science that's not at all understood by the gross scientists, but well-documented, you know, irrefutable. It's just irrefutable that people have things like telekinesis and clairvoyance and uh, solid scientific evidence. So why couldn't people take those powers to a greater level and clone somebody with the power of their mind? Why wouldn't that be possible? So that's another way we can have faith in these fantastic stories. Life is full of fantastic things. I mean, the main reason we have trouble believing in these fantastic things, frankly, is because of our education. So in education, there's four kinds of curriculum. There's the planned curriculum, that's what you say you're going to do. There's the taught curriculum, that's what you teach uh, overtly. There's the hidden curriculum, that's what you teach subtly like by the pictures in your books. Right? There was a big outcry many years ago that all the pictures in the educational books are of you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids with Anglo-Saxon names. So if we say, oh, we're in favor of diversity, but all the pictures were all the same kind of people, the pictures spoke louder than what the teacher was saying. You understand? So that's called the hidden curriculum. And then you have the null curriculum. The null curriculum is what is taboo, what we don't talk about. Every society has its null curriculum. And the null curriculum teaches with the most power. After that, the hidden curriculum has the most power. After that, the explicit taught curriculum has power, and the planned curriculum has no power. So in modern society, they've put a lot of these fantastic things in the taboo category. Growing up in the modern schools, you'll not hear about subtle psychic phenomena, paranormal phenomena. You won't hear about encounters with alien beings. We had our Sadaputra wrote that book, Alien Identities. They won't talk about it. They won't even talk about archaeological finds that they can't explain. They won't talk about ancient buildings that they can't figure out how they were built. And there's these buildings in South America made of these humongous stones that only two cranes in the world are capable of lifting. And these buildings are on the top of mountains 200 miles away from the nearest quarry. How in the world did those stones get there? We can't explain it with all of our modern technology. And they're put together without mortar, so close together that you cannot fit a needle or a credit card in between the stones. And again, modern construction industry, they haven't a clue as to how these buildings were made. In fact, there's a similar building made in Florida recently that they also can't explain how they were made. But they don't talk about this in the schools. They don't talk about it. You know, Sadaputin and Judakarma wrote this book, Forbidden Archaeology. They find this two billion year old sphere carved, which shows humans must have been living two billion years ago on the earth. But they just don't talk about it. So this is another reason we have difficulty having faith in these fantastic stories in the scripture, because we were brought up in schools and in a society where the current mysteries of life, the current amazing things, unexplainable things, are just simply not talked about. So you either just don't know about them, or you think, well, the people who talk about them, they must be some fringe people. 
there must be something wrong with them that they believe these crazy things because if they weren't crazy they would have been in my third grade class Uh, but if you take some investigation you find that there is no less fantastic and amazing stories happening at every moment on our planet now why should we have faith in the Shastra well as Krishna nicely explains in the Bhagavad Gita in the 17th chapter Faith is a natural part of the soul. It's a product of the mode of goodness. And we really cannot function without faith. All of us have faith in something. You know, we may have faith in our body, which is a rather foolish thing to have faith in. You know, but as a practical matter, we have faith. My body's going to wake up in the morning and it's going to be able to walk and it's going to be able to talk, or sometimes it doesn't. We have faith in our family, in our society. We have faith in our country. We have faith if we call the police that they'll come, right? And if if you watch enough TV and movies, you'll believe that they actually catch the bad guys and put them in jail. But we have faith in these kinds of things, right? We have faith in something. We have faith in some philosophy of life, either that we're just this body and life is just for material enjoyment and then you die and you're nothing, Right? Or if we freeze our body, it'll come back. Or we have faith that, you know, if you just believe a particular religion, then you'll go to a heavenly realm. And if you don't believe it, then you'll eternally fry in hell. Because there's a really nasty God that wants to, you know, give unlimited pain to anyone who doesn't like him. So we have faith in something. Therefore, as human beings, we should find, where should I put my faith so that I will achieve what I really desire? You know, even the agnostics who say, well, I don't believe in anything. You can't live like that. You've got to believe in something. You know, if you walk on streets in America, you basically believe that the cars will stop for a red light. And sometimes when I'm driving, I see pedestrians don't even look at the cars. They just see the lights green for them to cross. And they just cross. They're just assuming that none of the cars are going to plow through. And that's not true in every country of the world, by the way. There's other countries where the lights don't mean anything. (laughs) Where the cars have the right of way. But, you know, we have everyone, even the agnostic, has faith in something. They have faith in what is the value and how should I live. You can't possibly exist without faith in something. It's just not, how are you going to do it? How are you going to eat? You have faith that if I eat, my body will be nourished. Now, part of that is by experience, as we talked about in the beginning, that part of the way we know the Shastra is true is by our result. But also, part of it is by authority. How do you know when you get on a plane, you're going to go here or there? And I had a very funny experience, peculiar experience in St. Petersburg, small airport, and all the signs were only in Russian. Generally, when you travel in the world, people have signs in their local language and English. English is right now the universal language. But in this airport, everything was only in Russian. It took me a long time just to figure out where the check-in counter was. I kept getting lost. When they gave me my boarding pass, it was handwritten in Russian. So not only Russian, but they wrote it out by hand. And then, you know, it was time for my flight. And I tried to ask, what do I do? And I thought they said, Kuwait. Kuwait. I thought, I'm going to Moscow. After a while, I thought, maybe they said, wait. Okay. 
you know, so I'm just like waiting and the announcements are all in Russian and there's no signage that I could read, you know, and I'm just sitting there just saying, Krishna, I have no idea what plane I'm going to get on and where I'm going to end up, you know. And finally, there was one lady there taking boarding passes and directing people. So I thought, well, that looks promising. So I went over there. I showed her my handwritten boarding pass. She glanced at it for a tenth of a second. I don't know how you could read a handwritten boarding pass in a tenth of a second. Motions me to go someplace. You know, and eventually I got on a plane, and I just really hoped it was the right plane. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I really just like... I was sitting on that plane saying, Krishna, I don't know where this plane is going. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to be there to pick me up when I get off. Right? But, so we have, generally, we have some trust in authorities that if the sign says the plane is going to Dallas, that it's going to Dallas, and you're not going to end up, you know, in Ocracoke. So we don't just have faith in our experience. We don't just have faith in our result. We have faith in our authorities. We were talking earlier about the placebo effect, which is due mostly to faith in authority. Because I believe that this person, I am a doctor, here's my diploma. Maybe they printed it on their laser printer at home, you know, and just put on a white shirt. But because we have faith in that authority, we take this sugar pill and we get better. Even from cancer, we'll cure people with placebo, imagine. Broken bones. Such is the power of faith. So why not be discriminating and say, where should I put my faith? I remember when I visited the temple in Chicago when I was 17, and I said to the one brahmachari who was, I bought some incense, and the brahmachari who sold me the incense, I asked him, you know, um, how can you guys just follow a guru? How can you just surrender to an authority like Because those were the days in America of don't trust anyone over 30 and don't have any authority. We had bumper stickers like that. Don't follow any authority. I said, how can you do that? And he looked at me and he said, you're already following so many authorities. You already have so much faith. And I thought, oh, how does he know that? That was my secret. So that's why we should have faith in the Shastra. Because it's giving us the path to the highest perfection. Anyone else that we can have faith in isn't even promising the highest perfection. They're promising something material or temporary or partial. Even if they're promising, you know, liberation in the Brahma Jyoti or they're promising going to the heavenly planets, none of that is as wonderful as what's being offered in the Shastra. So because it works, because fantastic things are actually within our realm of experience in modern life, and because the goal being offered by the Shastra is the highest goal, Therefore, we should put our faith. Therefore, we should put our faith in that which is promising the highest goal and gives us some immediate, intermediate results. And therefore, we can say to people, "This is historical fact. Sukadev Goswami could produce a clone by his mystic power." I mean, we know that children in the womb can hear their parents. I mean, there's many stories of parents reading mathematical texts to a pregnant woman and the child, you know, is a mathematical genius at one year old. So that the child could answer from the womb, why not? If they were more elevated. But what else are we going to have our faith in? And frankly, 
Krishna consciousness is a nice life even in this world. We can say that, you know, even if you're not, there's nothing beyond this world. What better way to live than with dedication to the absolute truth, with concern and mercy for all living entities, without selfishness? How else should one live? Should we learn just live just saying, you know, survival of the fittest and dog eat dog, and if I'm more powerful than you, it's my evolutionary right to exploit you? Is that how we should live, even in this world? If we followed the Shastra, we wouldn't have any ecological problems. We wouldn't have any economic problems. We wouldn't have any social problems if we followed the Shastra. As Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, that I've given these sacrifices for attaining liberation and for living happily in the world. So even if one doesn't have faith in something beyond the body and beyond the planet and beyond this life, the Shastras are giving us a key to even how to live nicely in this world. So why not have faith in the Shastra? And one can compare all of the sources of authority and decide, where am I going to put my faith? Where am I going to put my faith? And why am I going to have faith? in one thing rather than another. So this is a very deep topic, much more than we can talk about in about half an hour. But I think we've at least touched the surface of this. And when we find things in the Shastra, each of us will find things in the Shastra that we struggle with intellectually or emotionally. Even Arjuna did, didn't he? Didn't Arjuna have some doubts? Prabhupada says doubt is the symptom of intelligence. What were Arjuna's doubts? Anybody remember some of Arjuna's doubts? Um, how can you um, like kill these people and you know, be righteous? Or... Yes, how can I kill these people and be righteous? He said, I've heard from my authorities, those who destroy family traditions dwell always in hell. So why are you telling me, you know, you're Madhava, the husband of the goddess of fortune, you're all these, why are you telling me to do something sinful? What else was his doubt? There would be unwanted progeny. Yes. So how did you instruct the sun god when he's older than you? You weren't living then. What was some more of his doubt? Yeah? Yes, Himana Krishna. He said, Krishna, you're telling me an unworkable system. I'm not going to be able to control my mind. I'm going to fail. What happens if I fail? He said, and he also had a doubt. He said, you're telling me do booty yoga and then you're telling me and give up all abominable actions and then you're telling me to fight? He said, I don't understand your equivocal instructions. Right? So Arjuna has doubts when Krishna is instructing. We find Mars Purkit. He also. What are some of his doubts? What is the best thing to do when you die? And he didn't believe just anything he heard from any of the sages. Um, when um, Sukadeva is telling them, um, what did he tell them about? Um, he, he told them about being a pious person. Yes. Yes, yes. He told him about just just do some pious chitta, just do some penance to get free of your sinful activities. And Rickett said, oh, that's not going to work. That's like an elephant taking a bath. Right? He also expressed a doubt about Raslila at the end of the Raslila chapter. 
He said Krishna is supposed to be the, you know, yadyaditarti shrestha. So what is, why is he having this rasalila dance? And he also said, well, how are the, the gopis are getting purified just by thinking of Krishna as their boyfriend? How is that possible? So we shouldn't be surprised that we have some doubt or question when we read the Shastra. It's not that if we say we should have faith in the Shastra again. It's not that it should be blindfolded. Okay, I just have faith in everything in the Shastra. I don't have any problem with anything. But that's not the reality of the Shastra. In fact, the reason the Shastra exists is that there were questions and answers. The Shastras all question his answers, and some of those are doubts. Some of those, I don't, I don't know about this. And also, Amarj Prickett asks in the second canto, how is it that the pure living entity is in the material world, covered by a material body? How is that possible? There's the question, how does the Lord favor the devotees when he's equal to everyone? There's so many questions like that. So when we have doubts in the Shastra, what should we do with them? Ask questions. That's one of the principles of being a disciple. Being a good disciple is not just, yes, I follow what you say, I am a computer. The prophet says blind following is condemned. Part of being a good disciple is asking questions. Now, not foolish questions, but asking questions. And frankly, better to even ask foolish questions than to ask no questions. Although Prabhupada said blind following and absurd inquiries are condemned both. But better to take the risk of asking a foolish question. The worst you'll get is chastised by your guru and that won't be a bad thing. So this means we have to have people of whom we feel uh, confident to ask those questions. We can always also ask the questions of Krishna until we feel satisfied. And sometimes the answers to questions and our doubts take time for us to understand Sometimes our own spirituality has to mature before we can understand the answers. So some of the questions, you know, you ask and you don't like the answer and you just kind of put it aside and you say, you know, please, Krishna, arrange that I can get an answer to this when the time is right. And we will experience it as we go on following the Shastra. All of our doubts will become resolved. And ultimately, they'll become resolved because Krishna lights up the heart and like the sun lights up everything, everything becomes clear to us. So thank you very much. A um, little bit of a hurry this morning, but we can have maybe one or two questions. If anybody has any questions. No? Okay, so tonight we'll... Um,